forgot to turn my mic on. Hey, good morning, everybody. Come on, you can smile even if it's raining. Come on, get over it. Boy, wasn't that some glorious days? It was like, it felt like walking along in Chelan. It was like, man, that's spectacular. It'll come back. It'll come back. We always get that teaser and uh, it'll come back. Hey, um, take your Bibles and open up. We're, I want you to start in Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. If you're newer visiting, we just started a new series called Responsibility. And you can see the little play on words up here up on the screen. And uh, we're going to be talking about grace this morning and its, its significant and critical role in how we live the Christian life. And so I hope that will be helpful. Will you join me as we pray? Father, when it comes to grace, that really comes from You. And it is not something we work up or conjure up or earn or anything like that. We are amazingly beholding to You. You have been extraordinarily kind. Many of us recognize as we look back that there was grace extended to us in magnificent ways. Sometimes we responded well. Sometimes we ignored it or resisted, not understanding it. And this morning, Lord, we want to embrace it. As we come to communion, as we spend time with You and think about this together, we ask that You would connect it in our thinking in a significant way. And we ask this in Your name. Amen. All right. Uh, we're having communion this morning, and if you're new or visiting, all we ask is that you're a believer in Jesus and you've accepted Him as Lord and Savior, and you can join with us in a communion. So when it comes to uh, this topic, one of the things we're talking about is worship. And what we're saying is that stewardship is worship. All right, And we're going to talk about it in that way. And one of the things that often you hear these days is, well, you know, the Christian life isn't working for me. Or uh, I'm done faking it. I, I've been faking it for too long and I'm not going to fake it anymore. So I'm just going to go out and, and live the way I really am because I tried Jesus and I'm over, I'm past that, right? You get that kind of attitude, that kind of a repertoire. And I want to look this morning at what I think is a critical piece uh, as we talk about uh, worship and stewardship, as we talk about the Christian life, why it does or doesn't work. And in this uh, passage here in Hebrews 12, we used this last week, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. In other words, it cannot be taken from us. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And we looked at that whole consuming fire piece last week. And if you want to, you can go on the website Download and go from there. But I want to jump quickly to um, why we do what we do. Why we do what we do is because God speaks. God speaks to us, and when He speaks to us, we respond. Or we should respond. Right? Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But when God speaks, we should respond. That means... If you are having a quiet time and something jumps out at you in the Word and it connects with your heart and you go, whoa, right? That ever happened to you, right? Jumps off the page? No? Yes, come on. You know what that's like. And we need to respond to that. If you're going down the road and, and you sense the Holy Spirit saying to you, hey, you need to get in touch with your friend. You need to respond to that. And so the idea here is it's responsive. God is actively speaking in our world today and we can't go, nah, 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 I can't hear you, right? God speaks, we respond. That is the Christian life. God speaks, we respond. And when we respond, we're obeying. 
All right? So when he speaks, what we're, we're trying to delineate here, it's just not knowledge-based. You may have read through the, the Bible several dozen times, but if you're not obeying what it says, you've missed it. It's not just knowledge-based, it's obedience-based. Do I obey what he's asked me to do, or do I just know about it? And then when we obey, sometimes God asks us to do things that are nerve-wracking, hard, difficult, shaky, spooky, like way too real, right? And it's in those moments that we go, I can't do that, that we go, yes, that's exactly right. You cannot do that. That's why we need grace. And it's in those moments that God extends grace. Why? Because He never asks us to do something that we cannot do. Now, you may not think you can do it, but He thinks you can. And so He extends grace to us. And the idea behind that is God equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. This is not a church of super saints. We've got all the gifts in the New Testament. We're just ready to rock and roll and waiting to be unleashed on the world. We're a bunch of broken, scared, insecure people who Jesus found. We haven't got all the wrecks and chips and pieces in our own life figured out yet, let alone somebody else's. And then God asks us to serve or minister to somebody. And we're like, ah! right? Now, of course, we do that internally because that would look weird if you did that in the grocery store. But, we, but we're not. And then God gives grace and you find yourself doing things that you look back five, ten years later and go, I never would have dreamed. Never would have dreamed that that's what I would be doing. I guarantee you, my life goal for my life at 18 was not being a pastor. Okay? And I look back now and I just go, oh my goodness. I had no idea what God wanted me to do. It's amazing. All right? So that's what we're talking about here. So what I want you to, uh, to kind of zero in on with your thinking is this key component of grace. That God, that God gives Unger's Bible Dictionary, it's a great book you should have online or in your library, points out that God's grace is different from His love and mercy. So here's, here's how he defines that. He says, God, because of His great love for us, came up with a plan to extend mercy to us by the sacrificial death of His Son on the cross, thereby making grace available to us through His Son, whom He raised from the dead. And that's why we've got to come to Jesus. Right? We call it a come-to-Jesus meeting, right? a come-to-Jesus moment. Well, how about a come-to-Jesus life? I give you my life. I need your grace. I cannot do life on my own. When I grab the reins for myself, it just always ends up wrecking in the ditch. And I have got to learn to follow your leadership. I have got to learn to obey. I've got to learn. And if I'm going to do that, the key word in that whole thing is what? I have to learn to... Trust. Trust is everything. Will you submit to somebody you don't trust? Absolutely not. And so trust is a huge component to grace. Do I trust God that God will give me the grace for what He's called me to do? Grace is therefore very appropriately called unmerited favor. It is given because God chose to give it to us, not because we earned it. Grace is extending the opportunity and the ability to join God in His presence and in His work. We come to Him first and we get in His presence and then He gives us something to do with Him. Now what He's asked me to do, you know, there's this always the famous, oh God, I don't want to give you my life because I don't want to be a missionary in Africa. I don't like snakes, right? Um, kind of thing. 
But what you'll find is that God's dreams for your life are better than for your dreams for your life. It just doesn't always look that way initially as He's bending you towards what His grace wants to enable you to do. And so it really is true. We've got to become a trusting people. We've got to trust not just His speaking to us, but we've got to trust His motives towards us. And that is hard in a world where we trust very few people and we uh, have been burned, have been hurt, have been wounded, have been betrayed by other people. Trust is a, a, a precious commodity in our world. If I said to you, who do you really trust? For some of us, that list could be pretty small. Right? And so, uh, grace is extending the opportunity and ability to join God in His presence and His work. So here's some examples of grace, right? Some human examples. So, for example, you run a red light and a policeman pulls you over. And he says, sir, did you realize you ran that? No, I didn't. My goodness. Okay, well, I tell you what, we're not going to give you a ticket this time, but you do have to be watching the lights. It would be a nice thing. All right? That's extending grace, because why? You should have a ticket. Right? That's extending grace. Another example of extending grace. Um, remember when you were in school and there was a deadline for your homework assignment and you didn't get it done? If the junior high were sitting here right now, they would totally get this, right? Because it's that time of year. And parents, you know what it's like. Get that, right? You're trying to help them and they got to get it done. And, uh, and they blow it. They miss, they miss the day. And Grace, as the teacher says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you tonight. You can still get it in tomorrow and we're okay. That's extending, extending grace. Um, there's a different kind of extending grace in, in terms of an opportunity. Uh, so let's take a human one. Let's say that this morning, uh, Pete Carroll was here. And he said to my buddy Scott and Lisa, his wife, said, you know what, guys, I want to extend an opportunity to you to join me on the sidelines for the Seahawks game, for the opening game of the season. Would you, would you be willing to do that? All right. Whoa. Did they earn that? Could they? No. It was extended by who? Pete Carroll. All right. And, and he gave them an opportunity to do something that they otherwise would never get the chance to do. That's another way of extending grace. May that happen to you. Okay? Probably won't, but may, may it happen. So here's what we're talking about. Although it's mirrored on, on many different levels here on a human level, there is absolutely, please get this, there's absolutely no match or comparison for the grace God has extended to us through Jesus. It is the greatest gift, the greatest opportunity the greatest extension ever been offered to people is grace through His Son, the Lord Jesus. It is an absolutely incomparable grace. It's stated this way in Ephesians um, chapter 2. It's up on the screen, or you may want to look at your own Bible or on your phone or whatever you use at this point. It says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, see that language? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, it means when we were ugly and, and at our worst. When we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ because why? By grace, you have been saved. He extended an opportunity you had no chance to embrace. You were dead. You were out. You were disqualified. You were gone, flunked. And He extended an opportunity 
to have a relationship with Him again and come back into eternal life. By grace you've been saved. And He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Uh, listen to the same expression. If you want to, you can turn in First Peter. Uh, but listen, it mirrors almost the exact same expression we find here in Ephesians. It says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, i.e. God has done, thing, done something for you, now get ready to cooperate. Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed, or the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes focused on the goal. This is where we're going. Keep that in mind always. The incredible grace that will be extended. It says, as obedient children, notice that phrase. It's not passive. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, which I think is a great way to put that. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's a whole nother message in series. And if you call on him as father who indulges impartially according to each man's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What picture am I trying to get us to grasp with our minds and spirit here? And that's what I'm trying to get is that all worship is grace-based, Right? It's a result of what He's done for us and cooperate. All worship is grace-based. All stewardship. All the things we think of doing and participating with them is grace-based. Grace-based stewardship. I didn't say that right. Grace-based stewardship produces grace-based worship. Right? In other words, I've said for many times you've heard me, and I can put this in a nutshell for you. There's a telltale signature of a healthy church is the spirit of gratefulness. A grateful church is a healthy church. Take gratefulness out of a church, and it's like taking the oil out of an engine. Everything seizes up. Right? We are grateful people. Why? Because we were deeply blessed by grace. Uh, Here's some pictures for you to try and get this. We're talking about grace, ties to our faith, then ties to our works. Right? And so it's something that is in cooperation with God. This is not a pull up your bootstraps harder, get four brownie points, earn a above the curve, all that kind of stuff. This is about cooperating with the Holy Spirit. What does, what does that look like? Well, you've, you've probably seen this picture before, right? That you have facts. We know the facts. That God has given us His Son. That His Son came on earth, played on our turf by our rules. And when he did that, we killed him. We put him on a cross. But when he was put on that cross, what we didn't realize is he was there for our sins. It had been in God's mind all along to find a way to rescue us. And so Jesus was on the cross. He died for our sins. He was put in a grave. He rose again from the dead. We just celebrated that on Easter. That's not a myth. That's historical fact. And because of that historical fact, it forces us then to move towards faith. 
What am I going to do about those facts? Am I going to place my weight on those facts? Or am I going to stand aside and just look at them? And so we have faith tied to facts and then the feelings come. Right? A lot of times you ever notice if you just start doing what you're supposed to do, the feelings follow. But here's what we usually do in America. What we usually do is we lead with our feelings. Does it make me feel good? Does it make me feel warm? Does it make me feel fuzzy? Does it make me feel yummy? Okay? And if it makes me feel warm and fuzzy and yummy, then it's good for me. Then I should probably put my faith towards that and I'll figure out the facts later. All right? But the, the problem with this is exactly like our week. The beginning of the week was rainy and cloudy and... Right? And we in the Northwest are so funny. Uh, Janine someone was saying this morning, the problem we have with weather in the Northwest, if it's anywhere above 70, we complain. And if it's anywhere below 70, we complain. Right? So we're down. And then all of a sudden the sun came out. Woohoo! Right, Jess? And then the rain. Oh, right? And that's what our Christian lives are like. If we base it on our feelings, it's just an up and down roller coaster and we're all over the map because your faith can't, you can't anchor anything in your faith, in your feelings, I mean. It has to be the other way around where we come back to you have the facts of what God has done for us. You anchor your faith in that and then the feelings follow. Okay? It's the same in marriage. When you do what God asks you to do with your spouse, you may not have any feelings at all. But when you do it out of obedience, off of faith that He asks you to do, the feelings follow. We always wait for the feelings to come. If you sit in your marriage and wait for the feelings, will they ever come? No. You'll sit there for a long time. And so we've got to get past that. Well, this is also true when it comes to grace. What we do in America is we, we do works. And we hope God will bless it with grace. That's not how the Christian life works. The grace is extended to us. And because grace is extended for us, we can engage our faith. Faith means I will trust. I will put faith in what you're saying. I will trust it. I'll put my weight down on it. And then, because I'm in a relationship with you, I can cooperate with you. And God will give us each individually things to do. And then, in His grace, I cooperate with Him. You expect me to do that every Sunday, right? But it's not a Sunday-only thing. It's an all-day, every-day, sometimes hour-by-hour, sometimes minute-by-minute, sometimes moment-by-moment, trusting of Him to cooperate with His grace. I want to take a a biblical character here and and show you how this works out because... Abraham uh, is one we've talked about, and Abraham is somebody who captures my attention because he didn't have all the accoutrements or the fancy things we did. Matter of fact, if you think about Abraham, there was no New Testament. Matter of fact, if you think about Abraham, there was no Old Testament. Okay? He had none of that stuff. And yet, grace was extended to him, and it says that he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It says this, Now, the Lord said to Abram, this was his name, at the beginning, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you or curses you, I will curse. And in all you, the, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then three little words. What does it say? So Abraham went. Now that may sound simple, 
Gosh, what neat obedience. But you have to understand, that was a journey from like here to St. Louis. On camels and donkeys. Over mountains and deserts. With bandits and thieves and all kinds of, there were all kinds of unknowns. It was not a simple task, but it says, so Abraham went. And what I want to say at this is grace is not a free pass card. Just because you have grace or God extends grace, it doesn't mean life will be easy. It doesn't mean there won't be any thunderstorms. It doesn't mean it won't be hard. It won't, doesn't mean you won't have any trials. It means God's grace will be with you in those trials and storms and things that we face. It is God's means to activate engagement and cooperation with Him. Just like you see here with Abraham. It becomes our opportunity to engage with Him in faith and thus a relationship. And not only does He know you, but then we also come to know Him. Grace opens the door in the possibility. Faith then steps through that door. God speaks. Grace is the invitation. Faith is the response. God speaks. We respond. Now, look how this goes a little farther. So God takes Abraham outside. and he, It says, he takes him outside. It says, look towards the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them. And then he said to him, you shall, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. God came back a second time after he got in the promised land and said, remember what I said to you before? Okay, go outside and look at the stars. If you can number them, you're going to have more descendants than the stars. And it says, Abraham looked and believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Remember, no Bible at this time. All right? All right? Now, here's the point. Sometimes it can get really poignant. Sometimes, you know, we all go, oh, gee, that would be nice if God asked us that. But sometimes in your life and world, what God is asking you to do that you know in your spirit He's asking you to do is not quite as simple and can actually be painful. But it's meant to end with a good intent and a good result. This is in Genesis 15. So, um, or I'm sorry, this is in Genesis 17. And uh, God says this to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. And he's, before this, he's saying, I'm going to give you a son. You are going to have an offspring. And so in the process, he says, to him, as for you shall keep the covenant, your, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, up until that point, that wasn't known. And let me suggest something to you. I'll bet you they gave that a double thought. Okay? That's a little bit of a sensitive ask, don't you think? Gals are going, no, not so bad. <laughs> and we're going to talk about this because God's after something here. There's a reason he marked the men's penises. Yes, I said that in church. Okay, We'll talk more about it. He's after something. He's looking for something. And it says that Abraham obeyed. So God reaffirms his covenant that he will make Abraham into a great nation. Then he rolls out the command to be circumcised. Now, that's a practical action step. It's pretty obvious whether you followed through or not. And you're going to have some, it has some, what I would say, real life implications to it. All right? We obey, God equips, and trust me, you would need grace to pull this step off. All right? Because we're not talking about a baby 
that doesn't know any better, we're talking about grown men or teenagers. It's very obvious that that's going to be painful. And so, as God rolls this out, now, note the vulnerability in this step also. Sometimes when God asks you in grace, don't you feel vulnerable? Like, are you seriously asking me that? Yeah, he seriously is. They were wholly dependent on God to protect them through the time of healing. That pretty much immobilizes a man. It says during the time of their pain. All right, so ladies, God was getting even. All right. It says during the time of their pain. And if you go on with that, it, actually in their world, it was a very dangerous situation because it rendered them unable to fight. And if you look in Scripture, there's several times um, when this happened uh, that people got wiped out because they were in that position of being circumcised and not healed from it yet. And so it can have um, some real implications. So it can get really poignant sometimes. And here's the other thing. With grace, it can get really costly sometimes. It's going to cost us. Look at Genesis 22. After these things, and God says, Abraham responded right in all these things. Then God tested Abraham. Why would he test him? Has God ever tested you? You ever been obeyed, obeyed, and then He tests you? And you're like, wait a minute. I've been faithful here. Said to Abraham, Abraham, and he said, yes, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. Remember the miracle that Isaac was. Right? Impossible for Abraham or Sarah to have children. Miracle child. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. Now we just think that Abraham says, Sir, gallivanted off on his donkey. No big problem. I know what God's asking him for. But Scripture gives us insight in that it tremendously tormented Abraham and he struggled. And look in Hebrews here in this passage because it's not as easy as it looks. It says, By faith, Abraham gives us a little insight. When he was tested, this is talking about the passage in Genesis, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in act was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words, Abraham was wrestling with, and I think we wrestle with, sometimes God asks us to do something, and it looks like the death of everything he's built. Isaac was the promise. There were, you know the story, it was all kinds of struggles and they tried to jury-rig it on a human means and that's where Ishmael came about and created all kinds of problems and conundrums and catch-22s uh, for our world up to this day. But then Isaac was born miraculously and they were like, wow, look at the miracle, look at what God has done. And then God says, take out the miracle. Have you ever been in a place where God, what God has asked you to do looks like death? Feels like death? Tastes like death? It looks like God is undoing the promises that He has promised you in your life. And it looks like He has brought you to a dead end instead of life. This is exactly 
what Abraham was wrestling in. What it was he saying? How can I, if he kills the promise, that's, but that's my son. What, oh, can you imagine the turmoil? And it says that Abraham wrestled with it to the point where he said, you know, God can raise the dead. And so I'll trust him in this step. Notice that the grace was there for Abraham to obey and the obedience was whether it made sense or not to our human reason. And because he followed through, Abraham's name is now famous. But was it easy for him to get there? I want to suggest to you almost everyone in this room would probably fail that test. Me included. He did something. There's a reason why Abraham is remembered. Because the test he went through was unlike the test of anybody else other than God himself with his own son. That was grace operating in that circumstance. And it is grace operating in our circumstance. Even when it's difficult. I'm going to ask the guys to come forward and uh, serve us communion. Guys, if you would do that while we're here. So here's what I'm trying to get us to wrap our heads around. Um, We want God to extend grace to us as a church. We want to cooperate with God. We want to be obedient. But this grace-based worship stewardship is a lifestyle. And where we get bogged down Uh, This is very simple. Um, Where we get bogged down and where we get significantly paralyzed in our Christian life is at this point exactly is when we know what to do, but we don't do it. When we know God has asked us to do something and we don't do it. Right? Because at that point, we disengage from grace and we roll along in our own merits. We roll along in what I bring to the Christian life. We roll along in what I can do. And Christianity becomes works-based. Try harder, do harder, pull your bootstraps up, better effort. Okay, you failed this week, do it. Why? Because I'm doing the Christian life in my own strength. Now, any thinking person, if you stop for three seconds, is the Christian life doable on your own strength? No, the Christian life is impossible to do. Any of you got to that place where you're reading Scripture and going, oh my gosh, I can't do that. It's impossible to do. It's only doable if we are extended grace and we cooperate with that grace. So therefore, if we unhitch from that grace, we pull the pin and we let the locomotive of grace take off and our faith and work stay behind, what happens? Our faith dies and our work dies and what happens? We're out of the faith. How many people do you know started off on grace-based faith and they pulled the pin and the train took off and they died on the tracks and they're no longer around? I'll bet you we could list names. If we could list names, we could fill the walls. How many people should be in church and aren't in church right now today or should have momentum and have no momentum today? How many of you know in your marriages when you operated in grace-based and you pulled that pin and then it was just you and your spouse and it became works and your love died and dried up for each other? 
Because the train took off down the tracks and we pulled the pin. And what we're saying is God will extend grace. He'll back the engine up. He'll let us put the pin back in. And He'll start pulling us down the tracks again if we obey. God speaks. We respond. By the way, that's why we should be in the Word. God speaks. We respond. When we obey, He equips And the result is worship. Right? Why do you worship? I worship you, God, because you allowed me to do something that I could not do in my own strength. We uh, went to a counseling thing this week. A number of Shannon, Lisa, and Pam and I, and David and Susan, and Martha, and Diana. and There's a bunch of us. And in that, they they use the... uh, the story at the end of Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus does the, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount as we know it. And the end of chapter 7 is an illustration and it reads like this. It says, therefore, and I, we didn't, don't need to put it up. I want you to see this, but you know this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Right? We know that song. You gotta build your house. Right? Okay. Now you won't get that song out of your head the rest of the day. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and the beat against that house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Both people have some things in common, right? Both of them heard the words of Jesus. Both of them built something. Both of them endured storms. But the results, the consequences, were enormously different for the two people. For the man who built the house on the rock, the house stood. For the man who built the house on the sand, the house crashed. It says, great was its crash. And so it's on the foundation that was built. In the film, they had this couple, Troy and Debbie. And it was really funny, the first thing, because they were really hard. And they came in, oh yeah, we're Christian, yeah, we got a church background, yeah, blah, 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 all Christian stamp, all the right, right, peg all the right things, yeah, 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 we got all this. But their marriage was trashed. Their marriage was awful. Their marriage, they were ready to divorce. They were, you could tell they were really ticked at each other, right? Right? The woman's face, there's no countenance to her. Just, and, uh, and they agreed, and they, they, the counselor started talking to them, and it was fun to watch them. Pretty humorous, actually. And then in the second um, film that we watched this weekend, they uh, came in, and so they had agreed to some things, and... So with Troy, they said to him, so the counselor said, so, uh, so go to the Beatitudes and, and point out what stood out to you. As you read it, he was supposed to read it three times. He hadn't read it at all. Well, I kind of was busy and I kind of... So the counselor very wisely says, okay, so let's start with uh, Friday. How much TV did you watch on Friday? I'll, um, I, oh, let me think. You know, like five hours. How much, did, uh, how much TV did you watch Saturday? Saturday? Oh, well, I watched the game. and oh. Well, how much TV did you watch Sunday? Oh, uh, well, how much TV? Maybe it got humorous because you could see he was just a dog caught in a trap, right? There was nowhere to go. And counselor, well, he had watched 15 to 25 hours of TV and hadn't had time to read in the Word. And counselor says, do you think we could flip that around this week and you might be able to? Yeah, I think so, right? Here's the point. It says in in the passage, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. In other words, acts on them. 
What's important for us is are we acting on what we know or are we just knowing what we know? Because if we act on what we know, we will be a church full of worship. If we're just acting, uh, if we're not, if we're just knowing what we know, we will be religious people. And other people can tell. The world, our world, is not attracted to religious people. We are the worst of hypocrites. Because they know we should know better and they know we should do better. He who practices, i.e. God speaks, we respond. When we obey, it might be scary, but what? God gives us the grace. He equips us for what He's asked us to do. I want us to think about that as we come to communion this morning. Let me ask you a very simple question. Did you do this week what God asked you to do? Is there an area of life where you said no? You pulled the pin and let the engine of grace take off and you're sitting with your faith and your works hoping that will get you into heaven. That will not get you into heaven. You have to repent, which means you've got to tell the Lord your story and say, I'm sorry, I tried to do the Christian life on my own strength. Would you be willing to back the train up? Would you be willing to put the pin back in? And could we go back down the tracks together? You know, when you think about it, that's what communion is. What is communion? Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commandments. If you love me, you'll do what I've asked you to do. That's why all of us should repent. Because not any of us have done exactly what we're supposed to do. It is by grace that we are gathered here this morning. It is by grace that God will use us as a church. It's by grace we get into heaven. It is not by our own faith. It's real popular to say, oh yeah, I'm a person of faith. The question is not a faith. Faith in who? Faith in Jesus or faith in ourselves? Are we resting on our own laurels or are we resting on the Lord's? So Jesus instituted communion, i.e. we're in relationship together. I've extended my grace to you and we have a relationship because I've made it possible for us to have a relationship. He said, never forget that relationship. Never forget what I've done for you. Recognize the incredible gift that's been extended to you. Why? Because I died for you. This is a symbol of my body. What happened to his body? He got hung on a cross. It got whipped. It got tortured. It got beaten for our sin. He says, never forget that I opened the door. You can only get in through the door I've opened. He said, eat this in memory of me. And then the cup. Cup's a symbol of relationship. You don't share wine with your enemies. You share wine with your friends. Jesus says, I want to be your friend. Will you be my friend? He says, drink this in memory of me. Let's pray. Father, in some ways, this is Christianity 101. And yet, in some ways, this is Christianity 404. There's a profound element to this that's very simple and a three-year-old can get it. 
And there's a profound place where those of us who are adults complicate it and can't get it at all. And Lord, it says we've got to become like children. And that comes back to you have provided a way and we have agreed to respond, to cooperate with you. Lord, I don't know how that has spoken to my friends, but I'm sure that it has spoken to them. And in that, when they hear you ask something to do, you give them something to do, may they, may I, may we respond, even if we're scared. And in that, as we tend to respond, would you give us a grace so that we could be equipped to do what you called us to do? That would, quite frankly, be miraculous. And we bless you for it in your name. Amen. Amen.